iTunes presents Meet the Author. Michael Bond is the creator of one of the most popular children's characters and a true British institution, Paddington Bear. Michael's stories have been delighting generations of children and adults for half a century and he was awarded the OBE for services to children's literature in 1997. He served in the Royal Air Force and the Middlesex Regiment of the British Army during World War II and has worked as a cameraman for the BBC. The Paddington books have been published by HarperCollins since 1958. They've sold over 35 million copies worldwide, are available in more than 40 languages and can be downloaded from the iTunes store. In 2008, The Bear from Darkest Peru celebrated his 50th anniversary with a brand new novel entitled Paddington Here and Now. Michael is married with two adult children and lives in London, not too far from Paddington Station. This is a reading from... Paddington, here and now, this is chapter one, called Parking Problems. My shopping basket on wheels has been towed away, exclaimed Paddington hotly. He gazed at the spot where he'd left it before going into the cut-price grocers in the Portobello market. In all the years he'd lived in London, such a thing had never happened to him before. He could hardly believe his eyes. But he thought, if he thought staring at the empty space was going to make re- reappear, he was doomed to disappointment. It's coming to something if a young bear gent can't leave his shopping basket unattended for five minutes while he's going about his business, said one of the storeholders, who normally supplied Paddington with vegetables when he was out shopping for the Brown family. I don't know what the world's coming to. There's no give and take any more, agreed a man at the next door. It's all take and no give. They'll be towing us away next week, you mark my words. You should have left a note on it saying, back in five minutes, said a third one. Fat lot of good that would have done, said another. They don't give you five seconds these days, let alone five minutes. Pennington was a popular figure in the market, and by now a small crowd of sympathisers had begun to gather. Although he was known to drive a hard bargain, he was much respected by the traders. Receiving his custom was regarded by many as being something of an honour, on a par with having a sign saying they were by appointment to a member of the royal family. The foreman of the truck said it was in the way of his vehicle, said a lady who had witnessed this event. They were trying to get behind a car and they wanted to tow away. But my buns are in it, said Paddington. Where is probably the right word, replied the lady. I dare say even now they're parked in some side street or other wolfing them down. Driving those great big tow trucks of theirs, they must give them an appetite. I don't know what Mr. Gruber is going to say when he hears Sir Paddington. They were meant for our elevenses. Look on the bright side, said another lady. At least you've got your suitcase with you. The black but the basket could have been clamped. That would have cost you £80 to get it undone. And you have had to hang around for half a day before they got around to doing it, agreed another. Paddington's face grew longer and longer as he listened to the words of wisdom. Eighty pounds, he exclaimed, but I only went in for Mrs. Bird's bottled water. You can buy a new basket on wheels in the market for ten pounds, chimed in another storeholder. I dare say if you haggle a bit, you'll get one for a lot less than another. But I've only got tenpence, said Paddington sadly. 
Besides, I wouldn't want a new one. Miss Brown gave mine to me soon after I arrived. I've had it ever since. Quite right, agreed Nonlooker. You stick to your guns. They don't come like that these days. Them new ones are all plastic, don't last five minutes. If you ask me, said a lady, who ran a nick next door, it's a pity he didn't get plant. My Sid will lynch his axe all like a shot. He doesn't know that kind of thing. Pity you weren't here in person when he did it, said another storeholder. You would have been able to lie down the road in front of their truck as a protest. Then we could all phone the local press to send over one of their photographers to be in all the papers. That would have stopped the lorry in its tracks to read someone else from the back of the crowd. Paddington eyed the man doubtfully. Supposing it didn't, he said. In that case, you would have been on the evening news, said the man. Television would have had a field day interviewing all the witnesses. You'd have become what they call a martyr, agreed the first man. I dare say, in years to come, they would have erected a statue in your honour, and nobody had been able to park. What you need, said the fruit and vegetable man, summing the whole situation up, is a good lawyer. Someone like Sir Bernard Crumble. He lives just up the road. This kind of thing is just up his street. He's a great one for sticking up for the underdog. He, he broke off as he caught pains as I. Well, I dare say he does underbears as well. He'd have had their guts for garters. Never been known to lose a case yet. Which street does he live in, asked Paddington, hopefully. I shouldn't get any ideas above your station, warned another trader. If you'll pardon the pun, they do say he charges an arm and a leg just open his front door to the postman. If I were you, said a passerby, before you do anything else, I suggest you go along to the police station and report the matter to them. I dare say they'll be able to arrange the counselling for you. Whatever you do, advise one of the storeholders, don't tell them you've been towed away. Be what they call non-committal. Just say your your vehicle's gone missing. He gazed at the large pack of bottled water pans and brought in grocers. You can leave those to me. I'll make sure they don't come to any harm. Paint and thanked the man for his kind offer. And after waving goodbye to the crowd, he set off at a brisk, brisk pace towards the police station. But as he turned the corner and the familiar blue lamp came into view, he began to slow down. Over the years, he had met a number of policemen. He'd always found many too ready to help in times of trouble. There was one occasion when he'd mistaken a television repairman for a burglar, and another time when he bought some old shares from a man in the market. They turned out to be dud. But he'd never actually gone into a police station all by himself before. And not knowing what to expect, he began to wish he'd consulted his friend, Mr. Gruber, before taking the plunge. Mr. Gruber was always ready to help. He most certainly would have done so had he heard their buns were missing. He might even have closed his shop for the morning. And if he couldn't do that for any reason, it was always Mrs. Bird. Mrs. Bird looked after the Browns, and she didn't stand any nonsense, especially she thought Payne was being hard done by. However, as things turned out, he was pleasantly surprised when he mounted the steps and pushed the door slightly ajar. Apart from a man in uniform behind the counter, the room was completely empty. The man was much younger than he expected. In fact, he didn't seem much older than Mr. and Mrs. Brown's son, Jonathan, who was still at school. He looked slightly apprehensive when he caught sight of Paddington, rather as though he didn't know quite what to make of him. Er, uh, um, Speckensee Deutsch, he ventured nervously. Uh, bless you, said Paddington, politely raising his hat. You can borrow my handkerchief if you like. The policeman gave him a funny look before trying again. Uh, Paul, do you 
Not that they thank you, Sir Pennington. Pardon me for asking, said the officer, but it's be polite to foreigners week. Strictly unofficial, of course. It's a sergeant's idea because we get a lot of overseas visitors at this time of the year, especially around the Portobello Road area. And I thought perhaps, I'm not a foreigner, exclaimed Pennington hotly. I'm from darkest Peru. The policeman looked put out. Well, if that doesn't make you a foreigner, I don't know what does, he said. Mind you, it takes all sorts. I must say you speak very good English wherever you're from. My Aunt Lucy taught me before she went into the home for retired bears in Lima, said Pennington. Well, she did a good job, I'll say that for her, said the policeman. Well, what can we do, what can we do for you today? I've come to see you about my vehicle, said Pennington, chooses his words with care. It isn't where I left it. And where was that, asked the policeman. Outside the cut-price grocers in the market, said Pennington. Always leave it there when I'm out shopping. Oh dear, said the officer. Not another one gone missing. There's a lot of it about at the moment, especially around these parts. He reached for a computer keyboard. I'd better take down some particulars. It had my buns in it, said Pennington. That's not a lot to be going on, said the policeman. I was wondering what make it is. Well, it's not really a make, said Pennington vaguely. Mr Brown built it for me when I first went to stay with them. Home made, said the officer, typing in the words. Uh, colour? I think it's called wickerwork, said Pennington. I'll put down yellow for the time being, said the man. Did you leave the handbrake on? That always slows them down a bit when they want to make a quick getaway. It doesn't have a handbrake, said Pennington. It doesn't even have a paw brake. If I need to stop on the hill, I usually put some stones under the wheels, especially if I've been to get the potatoes. Potatoes, echoed the policeman. What have potatoes got to do with it? They weigh a lot, explained Pennington, especially King Edwards. If my vehicle started to roll down the hill, I don't know what I'd do. I expect I would close my eyes in case it hit something and all the potatoes fell out. The policeman looked up from his keyboard and said to Pennington. I'll pretend I didn't hear that, he said, not unkindly. That sort of thing wouldn't go down too well if it's read out in court. You might find yourself ending up in prison. Mind you, he continued, it's probably on its way to the Czech Republic or somewhere like that by now. The Czech Republic, exclaimed Payne hotly, but it's only just gone ten o'clock. You'd be surprised, said the man. These people don't lose any time. A quick going over with a spray gun. Who knows what colour it is by now? New number plate? On the other hand, we don't let the grass grow under our feet. He picked up a telephone. I'll put out North Station's call. I don't have one of those, said Payton, looking most relieved. One of what? asked the policeman, holding his hand over the mouthpiece. A number plate, said Paddington. The policeman replaced the receiver. Hold on a minute, he said. You'll be telling me next time we renewed your road tax. I haven't, said Paddington. He stared back at the man with growing excitement. It really was uncanny the way he knew about all the things he hadn't got. I'm glad I came here, he said. I didn't know you had to pay taxes. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, said the policeman sternly. Reaching under the counter, he produced a large card showing a selection of pictures. I take it you're conversant with road signs. Paynton appeared at the card. We didn't have anything like that in the darkest Peru, he said, but there's one near where I live. Policeman pointed at random to one of the pictures. What does that one show? A man trying to open an umbrella, said Paynton promptly. I expect it means it's about to rain. It's meant to depict a man with a shovel, said the policeman wearily. 
That means there are roadworks ahead. If you ask me, you need to read your highway code again. And this, of course, you're quite right, Broken Pennington will never please to come to the police station. I never read it. I think it's high time I saw your driving license, said the policeman. I haven't got one of those either, exclaimed Pennington excitedly. Insurance? What's that? asked Pennington. What's that? repeated the policeman. What's that? He ran his fingers round the inside of his collar. The room had suddenly become very hot. You'll be telling me next, he said. You haven't even passed your driving test. You're quite right, exclaimed Pennington excitedly. I took it once by mistake, but I didn't pass because I drove into the examiner's car. I was in Mr. Bone's car at the time, and he had it in reverse by mistake, and I don't think he was very pleased. Examiners are funny that way, said the policeman. Bears like you are a minister or other road users. Oh, I never go on the road, said Pennington, not unless I have to. I always stick to the path. The policeman gave him a long, hard look. He seemed to have grown older in the short time Pennington had been there. You do realise, he said, I could throw the book at you. I hope you don't, said Pennington earnestly. I'm not very good at catching things. It isn't easy with Paul's. The policeman looked nervously over his shoulder before reaching into his back pocket. Toying and Paul's, he said casually as he came round to the front of the counter. Would you mind holding yours out in front of you? Pennington did as he was bidden. And to his surprise, there was a click, and he suddenly found his wrists held together by some kind of chain. Oh, I hope you have a good lawyer, said the policeman. You're going to need one. You won't have a leg to stand on otherwise. I shan't have a leg to stand on, repeated Pantanilla. He gave the man a hard stare. But I had two when I came in. I'm going to take your dabs now, said the policeman. My dabs, repeated Pantanilla. Fingerprints, explained the policeman. Only in your case, I suppose you should... Only in your case, I suppose we should have to make do with Paul's. First of all, I want you to press one of them down in the ink pad, then on some paper, so we have a record of it for future reference. Mrs. Bird won't be very pleased if it comes off on the sheet, said Paddington. After that, said the policeman, ignoring the interruption, you are allowed one telephone call. In that case, said Paddington, I would like to ring Sir Bernard Crumble. He lives near here. He's supposed to be very good on merging offences, I don't know if he does shopping baskets on wheels, but if he does, they told me in the market, he'll have your guts for garters. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, let's go right back to the beginning, before even Paddington, um, and start with you. You live in London now, but were you born there? No, I was born in Newbury, Berkshire, and uh, there's a place called West Mills. <laughs> in actual fact, when I was small, I, I, I weighed 11 pounds. Mother decided never again. And I'm told that she used to stand me in bowls of tin and sea salt in case I went bandy. And it must have worked because I, I think, I haven't looked at them lately, but I think they're fairly straight. <laughs> I might <laughs> even, in work. fact, because Newbury in Berkshire is, is a big training area for racehorses, I, I might even become a jockey if they gone bandy. <laughs> been, but it been it didn't start. turn out that way. Yeah. Um, and you moved to Reading. What what age were you when you moved? I left Newbury, or my family left Newbury, when I was six weeks old. Because my my father worked for the post office and he had a promotion and uh, it took us to Reading. And do you remember what it was like to grow up there? Kind of the street oh, you it lived was, on? Well, it was so different to, to, to today because uh, it, was, it was a, t a total... This was in 1926 when I was born. and So it was a totally different world everything 
got delivered to the house, as I remember it. I mean, the, the, the bread man came in the horse and cart, the, the milkman came every day, uh, fruit and vegetables were delivered, and then, of course, there was the postman. These things have gradually changed over the years. I was thinking about it only the other day, because the only person who comes regularly now is, is, is the postman. And I, I think um, that'd be a great shame, because he, he, I think they're gradually disappearing. Certainly this week, while well, they're on strike. But, um, <laughs> Do you think one day we might be picking our post up in Tesco's when we're well, doing our shopping? Well, I think they were friendly faces. I think nowadays people have retired into themselves and they don't really speak to each other as they used to. If you went if you went out, went down the local street or went into town, people used to nod and say... And, uh, I was brought up... My, 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 my father was a very polite man. He... He taught me that uh, when when anybody older came along, we we moved to one side to, to let them pass. And I used to think, well, when I'm older, people who do, do that for me, but they don't. They don't even see me these days. <laughs> if you go along Oxford Street, I'm the one walking along the gutter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So there was a good sense of community then in your childhood, from what you remember. Oh yes, life was very much more leisure, much more leisured pace. Did you have brothers and sisters growing up? Uh, no, because my mother decided I was going to be the only one. She didn't want another £11, uh, another £11 child being up, and I don't really blame her. So, But in those days, I, I think one made one's, um, one made one, one's own pleasure. Uh, life was, was, as I say, comparatively simple. Our, our first radio we had was actually a crystal set. And uh, there was just one pair of headphones, so only one person could listen to it at a time. And if somebody came in and slammed the door, the Swiss goose would fall off the crystal, and it was that. And then we gradually, we had no electricity. We had, we had gas. When, when electricity did finally come to us, we, I can remember a family argument as to whether we should have one... one uh, socket or or, or or more than one socket for for um, appliances and seeing we didn't have any appliances we stuck with just the one socket I mean people didn't have electric kettles or anything like that or toasters and so on so now you'd struggle t- taking things in and out of sockets to put your TV oh, no, no, no. well I tried to but I never, <laughs> never, never got them in what about school what was school like do you remember where you went to school I went to school at the local <clears throat> Uh, local um, primary school, for, uh, which uh, was quite near Reading, what is now Reading Football Ground Stadium. And I, I, my only memory of that is that we used to have to go to sleep in the afternoon when when, when you were small, and I, I can still feel the, the rough blankets that I used to pull over the head, and I could smell them. And I, I wasn't very happy at school. I, I, quite early on, I left. My 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 parents um, wanted to send me to a fee-paying school. My but my mother chose a, a school called Presentation College simply because she liked the colour of the blazer. Which she didn't make many mistakes in her life. But it was a big one because they had beautiful purple blazers, which were wonderful when you first got them. But one hot summer, and there used to be a pale shade of pink by the end of. So that was quite a big expense. But it was a it was a Catholic school. I, my family are not Catholics, and, and I'm not a Catholic, but um, I remember it because the ones I was in the minority, and I used to get bullied quite a lot, so I wasn't very happy there. And we were taught by 
uh, brothers. I can still, they all had rubber straps and you got beaten quite a lot for mis misdemeanors. And I can remember we we had a, I used to think I was being quite old when I, I imagine they probably, you know, only about 19 or 20, themselves or 21, they're quite, but uh, we had a, a brother who taught English, Brother Amber, as we called Hamburn, and I remember I was sitting at the front of the class and doing absolutely nothing, and, and he suddenly lost his temper with somebody at the back of the class, and he, I could still hear the rustle of his ground, gown as he jumped off, and he, he got hold of me, shook me, and beat me to the ground about the head, and I remember as I, as I fell to the ground, I, I'd had a cousin of mine that had a mastoid to be sent to hospital and I remember thinking I, I hope I get a mastoid and then I can get my own back on it but I didn't but but I I, I, um, I wasn't very happy there probably wasn't a very very good pupil I, I um, as, I, as I say being in the minority uh, we, I did get rather beaten but I I left at the age of 14 not not simply because I wasn't mad on school, but because the war was on, and every time we went to the cinema, and I was a great cinema goer in those days, because Reading had seven, seven cinemas, and it was continuous viewing, so you could go in when, when it opened, you could stay there all day if you liked, and, and it was generally good value in those days, because you used to have a main film, you used to have a B film, and you had the newsreels, and you had a Three Stooges programme, and that kind of thing. And in, in those days, every went, Every time you went to the to news to the cinema, you saw news where Hitler marched to another country and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Poland and so on. And what everybody was convinced how to 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 paint a picture of it nowadays. But um, one did feel that we were next on the list and, and and probably were. So I thought, well, I may as well make the rest of my life what's left of me. And I was. I was very keen on making radio sets and amplifiers um, by that time, and I was building a marionette theatre which had a revolving stage and and uh, various other things. I wanted to finish that before the invasion came. <laughs> so was that a hobby, or were you? That was my that, that was my work? hobby. Yes, um, <clears throat> and when I when I left school, I got a job in a in a lawyer's office. Uh, which ten shillings got paid ten shillings a week, and <clears throat> most of the job entailed bringing all the deed boxes up in the morning from the from the cellar and taking distributing around all the other floors, and then taking them back down at night. And also, because they were rather mean, they didn't like paying for postage stamps, delivering all the letters by hand around the town. So that that I enjoyed very much. <clears throat> I used to go into Dovrich Smiths and. See what books there were, in it. because we, my family were great, were great readers. My mother used to actually devour books, um, and I was, it was a big plus in my life really, because books to me were part of the furniture. If you went into a house and there were no books, there was just something, something wrong with it. Um, but I stuck it for about a year, and then I tried to pluck up courage to ask for a rise. And it sounds, again, it sounds funny because it's a totally different world. But I, I remember standing outside the chief clerk's office and I wanted to knock on and I kept missing it because I didn't want to make too much noise, <laughs> a bit like Paddington, really. Um, when I did hit it, I had a great thump, so he, he asked me, I said, come in, and 
asked me what I wanted, and I explained that he gave it a lot of thought. And he said, well, you can have 12 and 6, but it's going to have to last you several years. It's not going to come in, I hope, next year we'll have another rise. And then somebody quite senior in the firm <coughs> retired at the age of whatever it was, 70. And I remember we stopped work for about 20 minutes, everybody, well, we had a cup of tea, and then he disappeared, and we never saw him again. And I, I remember thinking, well, it must be, must be more to life than this. So I, 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 one day I saw an advertisement in the local paper. It said, wanted someone interested in radio. So, so I replied, to my amazement, I got a letter with the BBC heading on top. Extraordinary, really, when you compare it with life today. But there, BBC were building across the country a series of low-power transmitters, which were, if there were any, any enemy aircraft coming, you turned off the transmitter and then turned them on again when they'd gone past. And uh, this, this, they were building one in Reading, and I went to see the engineer in charge there, and he asked me, had I heard of Ohm's law? Well, I, I said yes. A year of Reich was out, and, and I think I was probably the only person who applied for the job who, who knew that. And he gave it to me on the spot. When you think of today, you've got to have a, take a big CV of all the things you've done. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was an incredible stroke of luck. Really, it's a case of being in the right place at the right time, I suppose. And was that before your time in the army? Oh yes, because that was when I was fifteen. I, I joined the joined the BBC, and then we got bombed. Um, because we were on duty one day, and uh, it, it, it was payday in, in in the middle of the afternoon, and we were at the top of a an old building, and right at the bottom there was what was called a British restaurant where you could get cheap meals. Um, unfortunately, it was a there. It's payday. It was a Wednesday, so that, that there weren't many people in in the restaurant. But we we heard it playing coming towards us and somebody went to the window and said, oh God, it's a hind call because I don't be so silly. And then he dropped us, somebody's being chased back and he kept passing over Reading. So he dropped a stream of bombs across. And I, I remember it all seemed in slow motion. I, said, so I felt as if I died about five times because it got nearer all the time. And then we had the, the bottom of the building was blown away. Um, and we, I remember climbing down the stairs, the stairs were half burning when I got down and, and everybody who'd been in the restaurant, uh, the first person I encountered was a girl who'd had her legs blown off. And then I, I climbed over the rubble and a hand came out and it was, it was a man's hand and he was holding his, his false teeth. He was one thing he wanted to save, and I, so I took them out, away from them. But they, they, I think probably everybody w w was killed, fortunately. And I remember, uh, there's nothing much I could do, but one, well, no, little, nothing to do really. I, I can remember getting the bus back home, and nobody sat would sit next to me because I was so covered in dust. They thought I was a particularly dirty builder. <laughs> um, but little did my, they know. Well, well yes, um, but then uh, we erected it. We, we, we there was a new transmitter built, and I stayed with the BBC until I was 17, when I volunteered for the Air Force. I, I, I uh, 
I suppose like a lot of boys these days, I picked myself with top two top buttons undone and going up and spitting. But how did that stuff. feel to having seen those kind of extraordinary scenes of bombings to then put yourself forward for the well, RAF? That was. I, I, well, I think people did in those days. Um, I, I came from a family, and all the all my cousins and the people old enough went into the forces, and and I think one. This, the feeling in the air was that, um, again, and, and our time might well be up and, and everybody had to do what they possibly could. So I, I, I volunteered when I was 17. And then um, I, I'd never been up in an airplane. I, I, I used to be terribly travel sick when I saw If we had school outings in the bus... I was always the one who was lying in the back, throwing up, and nobody was sitting near me. <laughs> and uh, I can remember we went on a holiday to to Southsea, and we I had a I had a, a lovely grandfather on, on my mother's side who 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 had a great belief in me, and he, he always he taught me to, that um, there's nothing you can't do if you really want to do something, go ahead and do it. And if you work hard enough, there's nothing you can't do in life. And nobody has said that to me before. I, I, I felt very, when I left school, I felt, um, I, I felt bad about it at the time because my, my, my uh, as I say, it was a fee-paying school and my parents had been paying for and I suppose they had high hopes of going to university and that kind of thing. Anyway, this very nice grandfather, for the first time in my life, he, he got very cross about it. He said, if that boy goes up, he said, "I'm going to leave home because if if we were meant to fly, God would have given us wings, and that was that was it." So I, I had persuaded my father to take me on a a trip to the Isle of Wight by plane and back, and that, that was the reason why the argument came up. So when I went to the Air Force, um, I hadn't been up in the air, uh, and I went through the sort of basic training. I went up first of all to Scarborough, and I can remember doing press-ups on the cold wet sand in midwinter and that kind of thing. And I went up to, to to Perth for my first flying training in Tiger Moths. Well, Tiger Moths have got two open cockpits. And we trundled along, the instructor would sit in the back and, and uh, sit in the front seat, and the, the pupil sat in the back. We trundled along the grass one way and I, I threw up. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember him. I, I still see his face. He looked back. I couldn't believe his eyes. Anyway, we took off, and then we did a few barrel rolls and looping the loop and singing in open cockpit. Is that every time you go upside down, you, you fall about six inches because you because of straps. Um, well, it was a very sort of bad period of my life because you can't just say, "Look, I wish I hadn't joined." <laughs> Nobody's going to say, oh, hard luck, you know, you go off now. Um, I was regraded for, 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 as a navigator. I can remember like, having a test. I had to identify some blots. There's a, there's a name for it when you get blots on paper and, and you've got to say what they mean and so on. And I, I suppose they thought the blots I had looked a bit like other countries and I might make a good navigator. <laughs> I got sent out to Canada. And it wasn't much better than being a pilot, really, because in those days, it was pre-jet and it was pre... 
um, radar and, and um, electronic navigation and so on. So it was dead reckoning navigation. And if you if you were a navigator, you you had a chart and and you you when you when you started off, you were given a wind speed and direction and so on. And you plotted that on the chart, knowing full well that when you got up to any height at all, it was going to be wrong. So you had to start all over again. Being not not flying above the weather, every every time you hit a bump, you either broke the pencil point or the, or the chart disappeared away from the pencil. Again, I I, I had a very miserable few months in uh, in Canada. There were very few days when it was the weather was good. The only thing about Canada was I was on the prairies and every little town you went to had its name printed on the grain elevator itself, so you never really got lost. <laughs> and there were two railway lines. Canadian National came Pacific. And I came back to England along with a number of other people when I was grounded. And I was given the choice of either going down the coal mines or going into the army. And I remember, again, it was in the winter, we were in a Nissan hut in, on the Isle of Sheppey and discussing quite seriously, I quite seriously thought about going down the coal mines for a while because the, the army sounded a bit rougher than the, the Air Force. I mean, in the Air Force, you did have sheets and things on your bed, and in the army, you, you didn't. And um, Anyway, I, I, I chose the army. I was very, very glad that I did, because I went in the Middlesex Regiment, which was a um, machine gun regiment, and uh, did my training, then went out to, to Egypt. Um, and... Looking back on it, I suppose the army was my university, <clears throat> and it, it it did me an awful lot of good, you know, made made a man of me. And I, there were times when I think, why did I do it? Because I I remember I had to go to a camp at Chester. I turned up by myself with all my kit, and big pack, so on. And on. Kit bag and so on, and there was a big parade ground there. As I went in, I heard a voice barking out, "Come here, you!" And and it was, came from the other side of the parade ground. And so I, I went to went to double walk across the parade ground, and it was a sergeant major, and he said, "You're not allowed to set foot on this parade ground. Go back and go around the outside." <laughs> so I did did that. Came back again. One out by then, and he said. What did you do when, when you came in the gates there? I said, well, there was a, there was a nice. I patted a dog. He said, that dog belongs to see you. You're not fit to touch an arrow. And it says, <laughs> if I see you do that again, he said, you're you're for it. You know. It's all quite strange. And, that, and I, and again, I thought, you know, what's life all about? But those sort of things that happen to you in the army, um, they, if if you get through all that. You, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a bad, not a bad Make thing. Make or break, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> or, or you'd, you, you'd go to enormous pains to uh, do, do, you had to fold all your blankets in the morning and make your bed and have everything you need. And, and the sergeant would come in and <clears throat> he'd say, your bed looks filthy. And he'd get his paste stick and throw all the blankets on the floor, you know, and take, Start oh, God. Again. <laughs> um, but I, no, I enjoyed my time in the army. In fact, when it came to the end of it, I, I, I got, um, 
about the time I'd been, I was a sergeant, and uh, again, very nearly decided to stay on. But uh, I realised, all, all, I had a lot of good friends, but I realised they none, very few of those were staying on, and so I, I came back to the BBC, and I spent quite a time in the BBC. I, I went to the monitoring service in, in Caversham, um, which is full of uh, for, in those days foreign nationals who all had stories to tell uh, of how they had escaped. <coughs> and that says there was a, a Russian count who'd managed to get out of Russia and brought a grand piano with him somehow. <laughs> there, there was a Polish guy who'd actually come, brought a, brought a horse with him. And there were a lot of... Um, it was a more intellectual... Um, kind of atmosphere that one met other people who who did writing and so on. And is that how your writing first kind of came about? Was that when uh, you no, I, I, my writing came about because when I first, before, before I went into forces, I, somebody I was working with uh, on the transmitter, someone called Tommy Tresser, he, he'd been in the Merchant Navy. In, in those days, an awful lot of people working for the BBC Engineering were, were ex-merchant Navy because they were the people who'd had training and signals and, and so on. And he had a cheque arrive one day from the evening news and, and it was for a short story he'd written. And I, I was very impressed by this. I thought, I thought well, if you can do it, I should, I'm sure I can. But I, I couldn't because I then decided he'd, he'd lived life and I hadn't. I mean, he'd been at sea and so on. But it sort of stayed in my mind. Um, I did make an effort. I sent a, a cartoon to Punch, and I can't draw very well. But it was a it was a a man sitting behind a desk. I mean, I hate to repeat it, really, but it's a man sitting behind a desk with two heads, and he, the caption was, "I always say Smithers two heads are better than one," which was which is embarrassing to to, to even repeat. <laughs> but I was pleased at the time. And, the editor of Punch, or whoever it was, did a very nice thing because he actually wrote on the rejection slip, not quite right for us. You know, somebody, I, I felt somebody had Somebody looked had at, looked at it yeah. and kind of made the and, decision. Uh, but then when I was in Egypt, I, for some reason, I, I had use of a typewriter in the orderly office and... I sat down and wrote a very short story for a magazine called London Opinion. I, I forgot all about it. Some weeks later, I had a a, a check arrived in in the in the post saying, "London Opinion pays Michael Bond will pay Michael Bond seven guineas." So and seven I, guineas for your first piece of published writing. Yes, it, well, yes, for our first piece of published writing, and <laughs> seven guineas in those days was was quite a lot of money. Except I couldn't cash it because the uh, Army post office weren't interested in that, and local traders weren't. I wish I'd kept it in a way, but seven guineas was seven guineas. <laughs> I think it went on cakes and beer and so on. But I thought, oh, well, yes, this is what I want to be. So when I came out of the forces, it, um, a few months later, I started, I stayed with the BBC, BBC but I, I carried on writing and I started doing sort of middle page articles for. The Manchester Guardian and, and more for London opinion. There were a lot of markets in those days, 
that don't exist now. There weren't a lot of markets for very short, short stories. And then I started writing radio. I, I sold a few short stories for to BBC Radio, and then I started doing some radio plays. And I got myself an agent. And uh, he actually, I can remember, he actually, I did, he had six half-hour radio plays which I written to, which he sold to Radio Hong Kong for five guineas a time, 30. He must have been losing money on me, but I thought 30 <laughs> guineas is wonderful, you know. And where were you working at this time when you were writing the radio play? Uh, I, I was working, I was still working at Caversham, the BBC. I was there for about seven, seven years. Uh, came out of the forces in 47 now. And the monitoring service, was, though it's run by the BBC, was what they called a grant and aid uh, organisation. It meant they got, got a government grant for running it. And uh, one particular year, the, the government at the time cut down on the grant, so they uh, asked for people either to get, take a transfer or um, be made redundant. And I've been wanting to get into television for, for quite a long time. And in the BBC, it's quite difficult if you're trained for one particular thing. I, I was an engineer repairing radio sets and so on. If they trained you for one thing, they don't really like you transferring. To, it's quite difficult to transfer to some other totally different thing. But I said, um, well, I'd like to go into television. And to my amazement, I was in television about two days later. And it was at a time when television was still all, uh, there was no recordings, it was all live. And it was a very good, very good time to go into it. And a lot of people were about to leave because ITV was starting up. So if you had any aptitude at all, you got quite rapid promotion. So I went to, from just lifting cables around and plugging things up and so on to being a number three tracker and working my way up to way up to becoming a cameraman and it wasn't too long before I came a senior cameraman had my own crew and I, lo I love the life um, I used to think sit on the front of a camera and think God somebody's actually paying me to do this I'd have paid them <laughs> because in those days um, it was before BBC Two it was just, it was just the one channel and everybody who was anybody came in front of your cameras you know and it was and the people were pushing the boundaries open uh, over all the time, and uh, it's all very experimental. And you worked on uh, a lot of programmes, which were, you know, the first I remember working on the first ever Blue Peter programme, and um, and Sky at Night, and all those, um, which which were all groundbreaking programmes at the time. And and I think in those days, I mean, television people would watch anything as long as it was moving. You know, people used to sit and watch Tesco quite happily. So you were still writing at the time? Yes, I was still writing. And I think and then kind of I remember coming to Paddington's yeah, I, first creation. I, I, I decided that if I couldn't double my earnings for writing <clears throat> for the next few years, I'd have to have some time to call today. It, was a, it would be a nice hobby. But um, I... I uh, it was it wasn't wasted because I was I was I was learning all the time, and I learned a lot in television because you find with television you find with actors that it's easy for a writer to say 
so-and-so gets up and, and it goes out of the room. But uh, the actor will say, what's my motivation? Why am I going out of the room? And, uh, and you, you, you learn a lot about um, how to handle movement of actors and so on. And I had a... One day I was... I was always looking for ideas to um, for, for, for stories, uh, which which these days it's quite the reverse. I, because it's my job, I, I always have too many ideas. But I used to sit there with a blank sheet of paper, thinking, "What shall I what shall I write about?" I, we had a we were living in a one room flat, which was more like a caravan, I suppose, in in uh, in Holland Park. I mean, it's one of those flats where you, the kitchen was in a cupboard and you had to shut the cupboard doors and put that away and uh, and uncover uh, the bed before you could go to bed and so on. Um, and I bought a toy bear for my first wife um, as a kind of stocking filler. It came about because I knew, I knew I hadn't bought her very much that year. And I, it seems like a sub story, but I was... Uh, it was it was Christmas Eve and I was desperate to get something else which quite small to the kind of stocking filler as I say. And I was in Oxford Street and it started to snow, so I, I went into Selfridges and found myself in the toy department and there was there was one bear left one small bear left on the shelf. And uh, there's something something about bears. I mean Peter Ball the actor once said that the nice thing about bears is you can. You can t tell him your thoughts, and they, they won't tell them to anybody else. You can tell them your secrets. Instead of trouble with dolls, they're always wondering what, what they're going to wear next. But <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this bear caught my caught my uh, fancy, and I bought it. And I used to sit on the mantelpiece, and well, I was just to get my mind working. I my caught view of this bear sitting on the mantelpiece, and I wondered what it would be like if. A real bear was found on Paddington Station. I called it Paddington because it had been my commuting station when I was living in Reading, and also it was a it was a quite an important and safe safe, safe had a safe ring to it. I mean, had it been any other station, had it been Victoria, well, it had been been a girl, not a boy, you know. But it, um, I, I saved it. I nearly used it in a BBC radio short story, but I called the character Uncle Parkinson instead and, and kept Parkinson. So it, it turned out to be, if you believe in things being meant, it felt as if it was meant. And the very first words caught my fancy. And I didn't, had no intention whatsoever, A, writing a book, or, or B, writing, um, writing for children, which is also a big plus because I think children don't like being written down to and if not knowing any children at the time we didn't have any children um I, th I think i might well have well have written down so did you just sort of start writing stories about how paddington might have lived in yes well i wrote and... i wrote the first chapter which i did very quickly and working in television was 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 nice because you worked very long hours but you you did virtually a four day four day week and had three days off so um, I, I showed a story to my wife and she liked it and said, why don't you do another? And I I, th I think with the first uh, first book you you write in a series, you can go anywhere. 
your fancy takes you. Uh, but you do build in all the all the parameters. Um, but it, it 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 developed very quickly because I gave dress I dressed Paddington and the sort of clothes I was wearing at the time I was wearing a government surplus duffel coat and and uh, I I used to. I used to ride a, a folding uh, ex paratroopers motorbike, which are very low on the ground. The doctor Court used to trail along the ground behind me, but um, and I had an old old government surplus bush hat, so I gave him that. And I did have uh, I did have marmalade for breakfast myself in those days, toast and marmalade. And I gave him all the that that kind of thing to, to clothe him, and I. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Brown were really based on, I suppose, my mother and father, because my mother was the one who made decisions um, in in life. She would she would have felt sorry for Paddington, and I think all sorts of things I put into the story, which I I put in instinctively, like the label in his neck saying, "Please look after this bear, thank you." I put thank you because my my father was an extraordinarily polite man. Um, I can remember going on holidays to Alloway with my father. He he was so polite. He always used to, if he went in the sea, he kept his hat on in case he met somebody he he knew and he had something to raise. <laughs> um, and there's more, much more of my father in Paddington. Uh, people say sometimes, "Are you Paddington?" Well, I'm I'm not really because I'm very practical. Uh, uh, my father was totally impractical. I mean, he could never hit a hit a nail in the wall without bending. And so it's much more of my father. And as I say, very much a civil servant and, and very polite. And the actual process of writing the book, so that happened quite quickly, but obviously we were before the days of computers. So how did you, what was your sort of process for well, writing? Well, I, I, I had an old Remington typewriter, an upright, which... It's actually quite hard work. I, last time I tried a Remington uh, typewriter of that kind of ilk, I, when I hit the keys, it didn't even hit the paper. You know, I mean nowadays it's it's all too easy, and 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 because in those days you had to make several carbon copies. I very rarely made mistakes. I mean, I'm a self-taught typist, but um, I very rarely made mistakes because of the hustle of actually um, erasing everything. Nowadays, I can't type a sentence without making a mistake. It's so easy to correct, you know, yeah. or it does it for you very often. Was it difficult to get the first book published? How did you go about uh, uh, getting it to Well, I had, as I say, I had an agent by then, and in the first... Um, when I sent the, the book to... His, his name was Harvey, and Harvey, and he was, he was an escaped... Um, he, he was a Jewish refugee from, from Germany, and he, he actual fact... He was a prototype for Mr. Groover in the books. He always used to say, of course, people never recognise themselves in books, but uh, by the time he played around with them a bit, he, he was he was very much a Mr. Groover character. He sent, I think it went rounds of a number of publishers, about five or six, who were either turned it down because they already had a bear or it didn't suit them for one reason or another. And then uh, it went to Collins, and, and, and Billy Collins, who, who ran it in those days, he, he uh, was sold on the idea. I remember I got a phone call from, uh, from my agent when I was 
working on a lot of day program in the studio each saying we, we, we've sold it you know and I, I think they made an offer of 75 pounds advance and that that was that was the start of it really obviously Paddington's gone on to be translated into lots of different languages and you've seen lots of foreign editions um, I understand that there were quite a few problems in translation along uh, along the years is is it some of the British things sort of don't translate well into other languages? Or? Well, yes, I think in in the beginning, a, a lot of um, the the original book w w had to do with uh, misunderstandings of of words, plays on words, which actually don't translate. I mean, if it plucked something out of the air, Paddington was playing tennis, and the umpire said juice. He would think because he was thirsty, you know, we were stopping for juice. And well, that's okay in English, but you. If you try and translate that into serbo Croat or something, it doesn't really work. So um, gradually, um, I, I've done away with that kind of situation. Um, I think the, I think the first foreign edition was in Denmark, and then it went to America, and then to. Gradually, uh, um, I think now it's it's, it's well over forty, because uh, uh, it's in recent years, a lot of the. Um, Cold War countries have, 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 are taking copies um, and it's gone into Russian and it's very popular in Poland. He's I never know. He's definitely a worldwide success. Sorry? He's definitely a worldwide success. Oh, yes. Also, I think in the meantime, I um, the world has shrunk. Uh, when I picked on painting coming from from Peru, it's simply because there were some, there are still some bears left in Peru, and I, I really wanted somewhere a long way away that people wouldn't query the sort of background at all. But nowadays, I mean, Peru is full of people going on treks carrying their panning and bears. And Why do you think he's so popular? His universal appeal, and he's very popular in the States and in Japan. Well, I think it's partly because the world has become very much the same. I mean, if you go to some Greek island, which at one time would have been totally different, you now see the same, same shops. I mean, next and shops like that. Or, and I, I think it's also popular because although the world has changed and Paddington does up-to-date things in his, um, in his stories, the, um, the pace of life has changed enormously and I, I think people live at such a pace these days um, they haven't got time to think and, and or, or do a lot of leisurely things they'd like to do and I, I think they're very envious of Payne's lifestyle because he though he does up-to-date things he goes back to what is really a largely pre-war existence you know he has plenty if he says to the parents, I think I'll go upstairs and do my accounts. Nobody says, oh, you can't, you know. He, he does he, he, he does quite a good lifestyle. I'm quite envious of him, really. <laughs> so you've seen his rise to fame, and obviously your own as well, over the last 50 years. What was it like as Paddington grew more popular and you started to get fan letters? and? Well, it's, it's, it's changed my life quite a lot in, in many respects. I, I'm, I'm not... Um, I, I'm not. I'm not really a, a seeker after fame. I can't think of anything worse than being really famous and not being able to go anywhere. Um, 
uh, without being photographed or in 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 it's it's very pleasant um to be able to quietly do the things you you want to do um i i, I, I there was a, there was a period when Pennington first went on to television which really changed my life because however successful you are as a writer of books you're thinking terms of um, I mean, probably lots of people, tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands and so on, uh, over a period of time. Whereas suddenly, when, when it went on to television, Painter was on at a very prime spot, which was the end of the children's programme, just before the news, five-minute programme, and suddenly had an audience of seven million nightly. And that totally changed... Um, Things for me because the by that time the company who made the films I, I, I soon after I left the BBC children's um, children's eyes rang me up didn't to know if I had any idea, ideas for children's programs and I came up with an idea for a series called the Hopes and the Adventures of Parsley and um, through that I met an animator Ivor Wood who who worked on the Magic Roundabout, and he came to me and suggested he'd like to have a go at, at making the, the paint of films. Uh, well, the BBC at that time really paid a pittance for uh, 30, 35-minute programmes with, I think, seven years repeats. So because they're quite expensive to make, they, they had to be merchandised. And in the beginning, I had high ideals. I thought uh, it'd be very nice to have, say, half a dozen really good products, <laughs> half a dozen really good products that I was pleased with when I saw them. But in actual fact, I very soon realised that I'd uh, opened the floodgates. I sort of kicked a ball which I couldn't stop. And most you could hope to do was keep it in playing, keep some control of it. So uh, you you get. I had an office in uh, in, in Soho in Beak Street. And people used to knock on my door every day, wanting, wanting a license to do this, that, and the other. And in a funny kind of way, I used to rely on on, on what Pennington was to think of it. I used to think, "Is this a product Pennington would like?" You know, if I thought he wouldn't like it, um, the answer was, answer was no. Because I, I was sort of fairly soft out at the time. People would come with a sob story and saying, "Oh." If you said no, they say, "Oh dear, we got scan into production already." I know we shouldn't do that, but I used, to think, I used to go to bed and think, "Oh God, what have I done?" <laughs> and I can remember going to a big uh, sheet metal firm in Reading, um, and they had a, a, a machine the size of a house, and they were feeding sheet metal in at one end and spewing out uh, painted waste paper buckets at the other end, a picture of painted on, so on, all dried. And I thought, God, I filled I filled the world with waste paper because, you know, but I never I, I know I sold they sold a lot, but I've I've never actually seen one. So it must have been a very busy time for you then, from Pennington oh, yes. going from just I, being I, books I, to. Uh... I found myself running down Beak Street to get a sandwich one lunchtime, because I hadn't got time to walk, and I talking to my agent Harvey and I, and I told him this, and he, he said what I've said occasionally. What's life all about? You know, can't carry on like this. 
and he suggested I I saw my the company lawyer because at that time there were an awful lot of um, pirates making pirate products, patented products, and the copyright lawyer there was wanting to uh, get out of being a straight lawyer, wanting to get into something I made I made him an offer of coming to join me in Paddington. And so he took over that side of it. And also, because of all the work involved, and the amount of fan mail I was getting, there was no time for any writing, so it's, it's, uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So it was the TV series, really, that catapulted Paddington up to a new level, but did you encounter any particular problems moving him from books to TV? Well, I enjoyed writing for TV um, because having worked in television, uh, I, I, um, I mean, the problem with with, with that was that you, you were having to cut um, stories which take quarter an hour, twenty minutes down to five minutes. But the the problems, which were kind of mathematical, is it was, I I think it's a bit like constructing something out of some piece of the wood and so on. It, it was a construction job, and and it had its own um, own, own kind of. Um, challenge which was enjoyable up to a point <laughs> you mentioned all the fan mail how many letters would you have received kind of at the height of it all um say a month or well, a year well, well, well every post came um i mean sometimes by dozens particularly from america america were, were great um, children were great letter writers uh, it's gone right down there because um people are we did would get a child to write a letter now. I mean, I, I get I, I, I get a number every week, but I mean, it's dropped from what, what was what was kind of enveloping me. But when I first started to answer them, if some of the child had actually printed a letter to me, I used to print one in return, but I soon had to drop that. And I, I, I've always been very careful to answer letters from children because I know how difficult it is to, to get a letter. And, and I, I think if you're a child, you only write to somebody if if you enjoyed what the if if they haven't enjoyed it, forget it. They're not going to write. So I think the least you can do is write something back. Uh, and I also remember when I was, I don't know, fifteen years old or whatever, I fell in love with Diana Durbin, which kind of dates me. And I sent off a letter to her saying, "Could I have a picture?" And it came back. When I saw it. It had her name name printed on it, and I thought there are other people. You know, suddenly it didn't mean anything anymore. And that one of the nice things, one of my early letters I sent to a child in America, he wrote back to me and thanked me very much, and he said I could I could feel that it was real because I could feel the bumps from the typewriter on the note paper. And I I, I think I don't do it for that reason, but I I very often get letters from people saying. I wrote to you what, 30 years ago and you wrote back and, and I've still got the letter framed. Or what's, I used to send out pennies and cards and it's, it's framed. And, and there's, there's a lot of... There's, there's a lot of um, sort of a groundswell of, of love and feeling for Paddington. It's, it's very important in people's life. And people don't... Um, I don't think they, well they don't throw their bears away in a way that they probably throw most toys away or dolls he's definitely something that's been cherished isn't he over yes, the years I, I think people relate relate to their bears 
Um, I mean, and quite recently there was a, there was a there was a dinner party that the conservative leader was at. Um, Cameron and and when they sat down, it was a, it was a party. When they sat down, there were there were thirteen at the table. There was a great consternation, and the owner of the restaurant said, "Leave it to me." He dashed upstairs, and he had a pound of beer upstairs, and the poor pound ended up down. He had a, a, a seat at the table. Guest of honour. And, and people do. I I know when I went on a, 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 a long tour of Australia. Some years ago, every time I got on an airplane, I was always getting invited up to the flat, flight deck because I was carrying a Paddington. They, they didn't want to see me, but they wanted to see Paddington. And, and they, these, the, the guys up, the pilot and so on, they all be relating, talking to her. And I, I, I remember they, they said to me one day, I was, I was on, on my way to Perth, I think, and they said, you can go back to your seat if, if you like. And he, Paddington said, we'll put him in the bucket seat. And, and then a letter... Uh, a message came down from the flight deck saying, "Would you mind if, if Paddington stays up here because he wants to try landing the plane?" <laughs> I didn't so tell the yeah. other passengers. He has a big effect on people, and he's been quite privileged over the years in certain situations. Then hasn't he? Oh yes. So in two thousand and eight, he celebrated his fiftieth anniversary, which is quite an incredible landmark, um, and to still be so popular with various generations. And you wrote a new story called Paddington Here and Now, which you've read a section from today. What was it like to return to the character after 30 years of not writing him? Well, I had been writing other things. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was the first long book for 30 years, but I had been doing picture books. And uh, uh, again, that didn't help because it was quite difficult getting back to the natural link. But I, I think the pain in the stories in, 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 the, in the big books and the like here and there, they have a natural length and and they, they run to about, say, 25 pages a story. And having been writing picture books, which are m much shorter, less less wordy, it's quite difficult to make the jump from that to the longer length. But w once I had, it, it all sort of came back to me. And uh, I, I think if I'm... All my, all my books, whatever they're about, are character-based. I do, a, I do a, an adult series about a French detective called Monsieur Pompamoose, for example. If if I'm doing a, a Monsieur Pompamoose book, he comes out with me. I, I, I constantly sort of feel his presence. If I'm doing a Paddington book, I'm, th I'm thinking Paddington, and you go along a street and you see a street sign and it, it throws up an idea. Um, so when I was writing the painting book, he was constantly with me in spirit. Did you find that you had to change Paddington much to fit with the twenty first century? No, not at all. No, he hasn't changed changed at all really. Uh, I, I, the, the, the plots themselves, so, uh, because I mean he, he has problems he wouldn't have had uh, thirty years ago. I mean, he, he can't really. Very easily make a, tel a telephone call because in those days he could he could at least get a claw in in the dial. But nowadays, he, if he touches the, the keys, he, he dials all the numbers at once, and <laughs> and he can't use things like computers and, and, and so on. There are little things that it should, which have changed, but basically, as a character, he's he's really exactly the same, uh, and it's a, it's a it's this kind of. You're treading a slightly narrow line when it comes to the other characters because Jonathan, Judy, although they uh, 
they, they haven't certainly haven't put on 30 years <laughs> since the last one. They, they're still at school, but if slightly older. Um, Do you think Paddington's still as relevant now as he was back in 1958? Um, to the children that are reading him and the grown-ups that are reading him? Oh, I, 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 he, he seems to be as, as, as popular as, as ever. Um, I, I think, as I say, I've never... I've always written, actually, whatever I write, um, I write to please myself and hope that it, it, um, it pleases other people. So I don't, I don't, when I write a poem in the book, picture a particular reader. And in fact, I think because of that, he has a lot of adult readers as well as as, as, as children. I, I, I think when it comes to picture books, then you, you, it's, a, it's a different matter because you've got to write largely within within the experience, the, the experience, you know. But, but with Paddington, you can be really as sophisticated as you like if you approach it in the right way. Uh, I mean, over the years, he's, he's bought dead chairs in an old company, all sorts of things, and gone off to the Stock Exchange and complained about it when he found out that. Um, but I, I, I can remember once. I, I was I was somewhere near the city and I, I went into a restaurant which had little booths and I was there by, by myself and a couple of guys came into the booth next door and they started talking about the Paddington books and they were laughing their heads off about various and fleeting various things that Paddington said or they'd done. And it's it was it was very refreshing because I I think as a writer you you work in a bit of a vacuum because it's no good asking relations because they're not going to say well that didn't think much of that on the whole but it was a sort of unsolicited um, uncalled for I I I didn't announce who I was because it was spoiled the whole thing but it it was very refreshing and um I I, I think he does appeal to. To, to most ages. And next on the card, I understand, is a movie for Paddington. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, this it's being developed at the moment. There have been several, well, over the years, been a number of approaches. Um, it's, I think this this time it's very much on the cards. It's a very reputable company. And um, the script is being written. It's um, it's not without its problems, but I think these days, uh, when, when the first movie was um, suggested, they were going to have somebody dressed up in a bearskin, which looked terrible on the screen, I mean, uh, because you could see all the folds and so on. But uh, nowadays, the, the, the technical side of producing a, a bear, which which is believable in in, in a, Getting the character right is, is quite within the bounds of possibility. One of the difficulties, in a way, is that all the Paddington adventures, uh, chapters are single adventures, so you really need something a bit broader for the, to make a whole film, uh, which, in, in, in a way, in, in here and now, I did with the book, as uh, uh, I won't give the, the story away for people who haven't read it, but there is a kind of theme going through the book. And and I think they're searching for that at the moment, and I, I shall 
I believe it when I see it. I think one has to with films. So there's no release date yet, or you're not allowed to say? or No. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about how Paddington hasn't really needed to change for the 21st century, but obviously the way that you present him to your readers has, because we now have audiobooks and the Paddington books are available in the iTunes store. What's it like for you to hear the stories read by Stephen Fry? Stephen Fry, I think, is my favourite reader. Stephen Fry is a bit bear-like himself, and he really was asked to do it because um, well, the person who asked him happened to read that when Stephen went to went off to school, he always took his bear, his teddy bear with him, and um, he, he is, I say, rather a bear-like character. He, he's he's remarkably good reader of books because he, he, he enters into the spirit of things and I think his his um it's very difficult laying down any any sort of ground rules with with that kind of thing because when when the first television series was made all sorts of people interview were interviewed for for, for reading them. very well known people would come in and do their bare voices. But you're talking about something which, in actual fact, doesn't exist, you know. So it can be anything. And I think um, one of the one of the advantages of of the television series was because I wrote the scripts and I wrote them as a story. And and so, I mean, Michael Horton when he came in and auditioned, he just said rather gruffly, "I don't don't do voices." I'm sorry. But he he did, and he did he did a wonderful Paddington. It really became Paddington over over the period of making the films. But it's um, it, it's 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 a funny sort of area. It's the same on on the stage. You have some kind of there's a disbelief kind of thing which you've got to get over, um, and. You've got the suspension of disbelief in in in, in the theatre, and and I think you've got to have the same thing in in the films. So the only, another difficulty with the films is that one of the advantages of a book is you can you you're letting have the privilege of being let into Paddington's mind in in the text, know what he's thinking, which is partly where the fun is, and if you've got somebody actually playing Paddington, it's very difficult to do that. How does it feel to see the books available on things like iTunes and to know that people can listen in the car and it doesn't just have to be words on a page anymore? It's I've got I've got used to it now. In in the beginning, there were certain things. Um, for instance, the original Paddington Paddington Pairs, which was made by Gabriel Designs. If ever I was in a strange town and saw a Paddington standing in the window, it used to give me a Give me a kick, you know. Used to like that. Similar things, I used to see around. I didn't really want to see. I mean, it's um, he was getting put on all all, all manner of things. The, the the other thing about that is that there were things that I. I sometimes wondered if it was right to have to have had them done. Sort of metal toys and that kind of thing. After a period of time, and certainly fifty years. That they they acquire an antique value, and you, you look at them in a totally different way. So, do you think it's quite important to sort of keep up with technological advances and to keep up with the demand from Paddington fans? 
Oh, I, I, well, it's out of my hands in a sense because uh, if if somebody makes a film, they're going to want to do that. That's what it goes from making a film. Um, but I, I think, uh, provided you get the right sort of people and there are people of reasonable taste, I, I, I hate to see things overexploited. Uh, and I think if they're overexploited, then it's, they backfire anyway. You know, it's. Um, what do you think Paddington would make of knowing that someone could download his book on a computer and listen to it on London Underground while they're going about their business? What do you think he'd make of that? I I I, th- I think he 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 would embrace it as something very. It's always interesting, something new, and I, I find I feel the same way about um, uh, books on books on the pads, you know. Um, why not? I wouldn't do it myself because I love books and I love the feel of, of the paper and the look of it and the smell and everything. So I would never want to get one myself. But if it means somebody's going to read a story and enjoy it and, uh, you know, one, one has to live with the world as it is, not as one would like it to be. And we talked about you using a typewriter when you were first writing the Paddington books. But what about nowadays? Do you have a computer at home or do you use a mobile phone? I well, I certainly I've got I have several computers at home. Um, computers are wonderful. Um, I, I've been going through a, a bad time just recently. It's, it's, it's a sore point because if, if you, uh, I think with a computer, you, if things are going well, you don't get up and walk around as you should do. You spend all day, and I was doing a book quite recently, along with your Pomper Moose book, and it was the end of the day. And I, and I was going right through the book, editing it all, and one of my fingers, I don't know which, touched a button, I don't know which, but the screen went blank. And then the computer say, do you want to save what you don't or don't you want to save? And misguidedly, I said, because I thought at the end of the day, I thought, yes, I want to save it. And, and I saved it completely blank. Uh, that's the downside of computer. So frustrating. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I I did have it on a on a on, a, on another source, but uh, your whole world collapses. And I, I've got bars at my window, shutters, for, for, to keep burglars out, and it does stop me throwing the computer at the window. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you're not tackling the computer, what do you like to do to relax? What are your hobbies these days? Well, uh, I, I I'm I'm actually a workaholic. In the sense that I, I, I really do work every day of the year. I mean, I, I, I happily do some work on Christmas Day and that kind of thing. Doesn't I, that get I, you in trouble? I, but my wife, fortunately, who has worked for an agency, she understands it. And, um, I, no, I don't, I don't overdo it, but I, I, I feel, particularly if I'm doing a book which is going well, I think the worst thing you do is to stop it because, you, you, you know, once you stop... I think the act of writing is very tedious, really. Once you sit down and... The nice thing with the computer is you sit down, you switch it on, there are words on the screen. And no matter how often I've been through a book, I can, if they're on the screen, I can still alter them slightly, you know, word here, word there. So in that sense, if I was having to type book still I, I wouldn't do anywhere near as much do you think it's created more work in a way than having a computer because you can make little tweaks all the time and it's easy to make changes 
Yes, I, I, oh, I certainly do do far more because of the computer. I, I wouldn't um, live without it. I, I still find having been brought up in the days, well, not days of quill pens, but uh, you know, over the years, uh, children today they take a computer totally for granted. I still think it's wonderful. I, I can put a device into into the USB slot. And, and press a button in two seconds. That's sixty thousand words transferred to it. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 it is, we, we do live in an extraordinary world. So writing and reading, as well, is obviously important to you. What kind of things do you enjoy reading? Um, I, 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 well, I read a lot. I, as, as I said earlier, I was brought up. Reading is is, is part of my life. I, I um, you'll ne- you'll never. You're never alone with a book. Actually, you're never alone with a, if, if you're a writer. You're, you're never alone, period, because you have your characters, you know. But um, but I, I, I've always got a pile of books by the bedside. I, I read in bed quite a lot. Are there any other children's characters that you've enjoyed reading or reading no, to I children? Was, no, I, I don't, because I, I used to, when my... Um, when my daughter, my son and daughter were small, and uh, and and we, I th- I think another thing about writing for children, and it, it, it's a, the end result should be a shared pleasure. I know when I wrote to my daughter, or when I used to read to my daughter, if I wasn't enjoying it, she'd say, "Not really enjoying this, are you, Daddy?" And I said, well, "Not really." She said, "Well, let's not read it then. We're going to do something else." Um, so I think one one should in writing a children's book make it reasonably enjoyable for the for the adult as well because as I say it is shared and you it's a little window on the world really for for, for a child did your children and grandchildren enjoy the Paddington stories when they were young yes in fact my my grandson when he was quite small he he was very useful he used to go into supermarkets and he got markets and go straight up to the cash till and say my my grandfather writes the pain to mayor books. <laughs> so, Very proud. Yes, didn't get much response a lot of them. But <laughs> <laughs> so a few final thoughts on Paddington then, Michael. What does Paddington mean to you? Well, it's it's so much a part of my life. If I if I met him going along the street, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I I, I think I'm not sure we we might stop and have a little chat, but uh, he he'd raise his hat, I'm sure. But he's um, he's been around for so long, and so much, uh, I say, a, a, a part of my life. It, it's it's um, it, it's it's very real. It's hard to explain, really, because it's it's like I, I write a book, and then I see them in the shops, and that's it's very nice. If I don't see them, I think, oh dear, they're not stocking them, or oh good, I don't know whether they've sold out or not stocking them. Um, but it's on a totally sort of different level um but but the actual character himself um i'm I'm very fond of and and as i say if i'm if i'm out and something happens that i think he'd be interested in it triggers all thoughts in my mind he he's very good at i'm not very good at coming up with the instant reply when something goes wrong um but but, uh, i mean paddington's very good at that i I wish i had his ability (laughs) He's got up to lots of mischief and um, well-meaning mishaps in his time. Is there a favourite Paddington escapade that sticks out in your mind? I, I actually, 
like I'm I'm starting to work on another painting book. I have to admit, for I don't know, I only just started on it, but I, it starts off with a situation which was a misunderstanding from the beginning, and I I I, I rather in in the way that when Panther went to the police station in the uh, here and now, and there was a total misunderstanding, and you the the reader can see both sides of both sides of the whole thing. Uh, I, I I think readers are often split down the middle with with Paddington in the sense that <coughs> if if he gets on top of the table and he puts a, a plank of plywood on, starts to saw it, uh, you you know, and the reader knows that what what charity might be going to saw through the table. And half of them are saying to themselves, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And the other half, is, I think, is thinking they quite like him to do it and see how he gets out of trouble. And so when, when he puts, when he draws the curtains and puts marmalade along the joint to make sure... The great thing about Paynes and he is an enormously optimistic character, which is what I admire with him. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't occur to me in a million years to spread marmalade along a joint if I saw the pavement half hoping nobody would know this. Very enterprising but, he uh, is. But he, he, he quietly optimistic it's going to be all right. And finally what's the legacy of Paddington and what do you hope that he will bring to future generations? Well it'd be nice to think I mean I didn't dream when I wrote the first book and or went way into the series that he would still be as popular today as his as he is, I, I would like to think that A, he, he will stay popular because I think he deserves to be. I, when something nice happens, uh, I was pleased for Paddington. I mean, when I got when I got the OB, that was uh, that was very nice, but I, I, I felt a bit guilty about it because I thought, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just doing something I enjoy doing and why should I get an OB for doing that? But then I, I I thought well it's very good for Paddington he'd be he'd be very pleased so I hope that whoever comes after me uh, will will look after his interests I, he, he's he's a very good at looking after his own interests but I wouldn't like him to be exploited in a bad way thank you very much Michael Bond well thank you for seeing me. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store on London's Regent Street. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.